Do you understand the power of your salvation? Hello. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. This is a special message taught in the summer of 2019. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Every week I'm asked to uh, come up with a theme or a name for the sermon. And this particular sermon had a huge impact on my life. And the only, uh, or let me just change that a little bit. This particular passage of Scripture had a huge impact on my life. Uh, in my recent study uh, for uh, uh, going through the book of Romans, and I couldn't think of any other title that would be better than just the words Amazing Grace. So my goal this morning is to cause you to think about grace, about righteousness, about justification, all important words, in a way that maybe you never really have before, even though you basically understand what salvation is. I think if this works well uh, with the Spirit of God working here in these Scriptures that we're going to leave here today uh, with a hugely new appreciation of what it means to have God's righteousness put on us. So, I hope you have your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. You'll need to follow along uh, with your Bibles. And uh, look at verse 21. That's where we'll start. Verse 21 reads this way. But now, Paul writes, the Apostle Paul wrote this, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Here's the first thing I want you to see in verse 21. When he says to which the law and the prophets testify, he's talking about the Hebrew Scriptures. He's talking about Genesis all the way to Malachi in your Bibles. Uh, He's uh, talking about the fact that all of the Old Testament points directly to Jesus, even and especially the law that Moses brought down on Mount Sinai. Now, just to put a little bit of context into this, In Romans chapter 1 and 2, and the first part of 3, Paul has been talking about and teaching that we are all sinners. And it's been an intense amount of teaching to make it clear that every one of us are separated from God, that we all need a Savior, and that we're all sinners. And I know you know this, but you need to think about this. We're sinners not because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We have a sin nature. And so when you're reading through Romans and you get to verse 21, you can almost hear Paul breathing a sigh of relief as he now proceeds on from the devastating proof of our sinfulness to the remedy for our sin. It's also important to remember that God chose Israel, the Jewish people, to be the messenger and example to the nations, to the world, about Yahweh's desire for the whole world to have a relationship with Him. But they were unfaithful. 
That is why Paul is writing this letter called Romans, to announce to the world that God still has a plan, and the plan is the gospel. The word means good news, the good news about Jesus. In the margin of Martin Luther's Bible, he lived in the 1500s, is written uh, these words about this passage of Scripture. Here's what he writes. The chief point and the very central place of the epistle, the epistle of Romans, and of the whole Bible. In other words, he is saying that this, these 11 verses are the most important words in the whole Bible when it comes to the gospel. Now, this is quite a claim, and I uh, may not totally agree, but this is a stunning passage of Scripture. So we need to review what has come before a little bit. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. The Apostle Paul writes, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed. I've added some words here just to get the Greek grammar right. For in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the righteousness of God, God is absolutely righteous, He's perfect, He's holy, is, the idea is, the grammar is, it's continually being revealed, especially when the gospel is preached, especially then. And then he says, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, what does that mean? It means that we become Christians by placing our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. It means that we maintain our Christian life and growth, the theological word of sanctification. We do that by faith, and it means that we enter heaven finally because of the exercise of that faith. So our whole life as Christians is by faith from first to last, and then he proved proof texts it from the Old Testament, just as it is written, the righteous, those who are saved, that's the idea, those who are justified, will live by faith. And that's a quote from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, uh, verse 4. And then Paul builds his case, starting in chapter 1, verse 18. Now listen, if you had a, have a Bible that you can write in, I wrote above chapter 1, verse 18, and in my uh, Bibles that aren't electronic, uh, I wrote in it, the devolution of humankind. Because starting at chapter 1, verse 18, we hear about evolution, and we know that's not true, but the devolution of mankind starts at chapter 1, verse 18, and goes right to the end of the chapter, and demonstrates in uh, that, uh, that, demonstrates that morally we are devolving getting worse and worse and worse, and the worst of all comes at the end when a, when a society, uh, even our own society these days, even uh, congratulates those who are uh, morally uh, disgusting. But also, in the middle of all that, Paul demonstrates that no one has an excuse for not knowing about God. And if you read through it, you'd see that he says everybody knows about God's eternal power and divine nature because it's shown in creation and conscience. So in other words, he's saying those who say, well, I didn't know anything about God, they only need to look up. They only need to look into the skies. And today, with all of our technology and our telescopes, it's even more spectacular to see the design of the whole of the universe, but then there's conscience. 
And the anthropologist tells us that everybody has a conscience that largely turns out about the same throughout all uh, cultures. It's very interesting to read about. We have no excuse for not knowing God. And then in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul argues first with his Jewish brothers and sisters to show them that neither their religious practices nor their Jewish identity guarantee them a place in heaven. And then finally in chapter 3, this is where we're going to come to, Paul demonstrates that left to themselves, people do not search after God or live in a way pleasing to God. I know that that's true. I was a very outspoken, arguing atheist for many years before I became a Christian, and I was far from searching after God. He was searching after me. Paul also makes it very clear that the purpose of God's law, what we call the Ten Commandments, and the moral imperatives of the Bible were not meant to save us a spot in heaven, but in fact the law was given to show us our need for salvation. That's why the law is there. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is there. That's why the book of Leviticus is there. So I want you to notice that verse 21 is very similar to chapter 1 verse 17. So let's look at verse 21 again. But now, Paul says, after all I've just talked about, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets, to which all of the Old Testament uh, testify. Here's what he's talking about. He's saying because of the gospel, people can see the reality of the righteousness of God, especially when the gospel is preached. I'm a a long-distance cyclist, and I ride uh, a lot of miles on my road bike in the very early morning while it's still dark almost every day of the week. And uh, when I'm riding in the dark with my powerful uh, lights on and doing my ride sometimes with others, uh, I can't see anything around me. I can just see where I'm going, and I pay attention to that. But then when the sun comes up, and I'm out almost every morning when the sun comes up, when the sun comes up, everything changes. Everything that was already there becomes clear. And it's a beautiful sight to see morning after morning, even if there's clouds, even if uh, if it's overcast, everything becomes visible. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is like the sun coming up. The gospel is rising. And all through uh, the scriptures, all through human history, uh, we can see that God has made it very clear that Jesus is the answer to salvation. Example, Old Testament example. Uh, The book of Genesis. Everybody knows the story of Cain and Abel. When Abel brought his sacrifice to God, probably a lamb, he knew that the lamb didn't save. But now we know the Lamb looked forward to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that all through the Old Testament. Now let's move on verse by verse. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith, that's an important word, faith, in Jesus, who is the Christ, to all who believe. You have to believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. In other words, your, your ethnicity is meaningless when it comes to salvation. 
Uh, this is an important truth that Paul is trying to drive home uh, all through his writings. For instance, in Romans chapter 10, verse 12, it says, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, Jew, the Israelites, and all other peoples, everybody else, every other nation. There's no difference. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. Who's Him? On Jesus. The book of Acts says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but we have to call on them. And the reason is, probably a memory verse for many of you, if not most, verse 23. The reason we have to call on the name of the Lord is because we've all sinned, every one of us, no exceptions, and we all fall short of God's glory, God's perfection, God's righteousness, and, now here's where it starts to get really important, and all who believe are justified freely, remember that word freely, justified freely by His grace, that's undeserved kindness of God, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Justified. We're going to spend a lot of time on that word in a moment. Just as if we had never sinned. That's the way we are when we become a Christian, at least in God's sight. And it's done by grace, undeserved kindness. And we're redeemed. We're purchased from the power of sin by the body of Christ. That is what I've just read, the gospel, in all its simplicity. Since we're all sinners, we all need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior of all who call on His name. No exceptions. We need only to believe in Him by faith for eternal life. So there's four important words that I've already used some of and I'm going to be using through the rest of the sermon. They are faith. We must exercise our faith. We're going to talk about that in a minute. We must believe. We, we uh, are then justified when by faith we believe. And the, the simplistic way to say it again, I already have, is this, we're made just as if we had never sinned. And then a very rare word in the New Testament uh, redemption is a word that you would use if you were buying a slave and letting the slave go free. We're redeemed from the slavery of sin that our sin nature has put us in. We've been purchased by a price, and His name is Jesus. Now, I want to stop here and say something about justification. It's a, it's a theological word that every Christian should really understand. First off, everyone wants to be justified in life. In other words, all of us have within us a desire for, to have meaning in life. So what is justification or righteousness? Well, this might even help you as you read the Bible. The word righteous and the word justified, same word in the Greek language. So you can switch them around. To be justified means you're made righteous. To be made righteous means you're justified before God. Justification, righteousness, is the record of how we have lived. If you're looking for a job, you prepare a resume and present it to an employer to justify your qualifications for the job. That's the word. You were saying that you have met the requirements of the position and should be hired. That's the meaning of justified or righteousness. I recently wrote a couple of recommendations for individuals to be accepted in colleges. 
my letter of recommendation could be called my letter of, of justification. I am saying this person is justified to attend that academic institution. Do you see that? That's the meaning of justification or righteousness. We need a letter of justification to make it to heaven. But the problem is the standards are so high that no one is qualified. So imagine with me that you're applying for the highest paying, just, just imagine it, the highest paying, most satisfying job or academic pursuit imaginable. Your dream job, your, your dream college, you're applying. And then after you have sent in all of the application, you receive a phone call and the employer or the dean of the institution tells you that so-and-so, they say, okay, so-and-so has been accepted <clears throat> in your place. Not you, but somebody else has been accepted in your place. And will finish the degree. And will fulfill the job placement perfectly. But all the pay and the credits and the diplomas will be given to you. Not right away, you think, oh, that's ridiculous. It's impossible. It's a silly illustration. It would never happen. I agree, but that is Christianity. All religions and secular or academic or athletic pursuits have at their base a need for justification. All religions have standards that you must obtain. All jobs <clears throat> or academic pursuits or athletic competitions have standards that must be reached for you to get any credit, except Christianity. One time in history, 2,000 years ago, God fulfilled every standard of the law that keeps us unjustified by sending His Son Jesus to fulfill every requirement and then place that justification or righteousness on us so that we now qualify to spend eternity in heaven because of what Jesus accomplished and not in any way due to our moral goodness or academic acumen or business savvy or athletic skill. We must have faith in Jesus Christ and believe that His death and resurrection is sufficient for us to be allowed in heaven. And when that happens, then we are justified. We're redeemed. And then note, in verse 24, might maybe look back at it. Note this, I mentioned it when I read it. Note in verse 24 that we have been justified, redeemed, uh, or uh, re redeemed, or uh, that we've been given righteousness freely, freely. That's the important word. God has done it all, and it's not because of anything we have done. I mean, this is incredible if you really will grasp it. Uh, a contrast of words might help us. You may not have thought of your salvation in this way, but let's just talk about this for a minute. When you think about salvation, we always think about forgiveness. Forgiveness is at its base negative, and justification is positive. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, forgiveness says 
You may go, I'm not going to punish you. That's forgiveness. But justification says, you may come, you're welcome to all my love and presence. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, a friend you have hurt might choose to forgive you, but still stay away from you. I forgave a Christian friend who cheated me in business many years ago. I took no action against him, and we remained friends. I forgave him, but I chose never to include him in any future business deals. That's forgiveness. But justification would say, I have forgotten what you did and have a great business deal for us to participate in together. I really want you to see how incredible justification is. If you're in jail for a horrible crime that you've, you're fully guilty of and then are pardoned and released from jail, that's forgiveness. You're no longer worried about being arrested and returned to jail. And that would be great. But justification is much more than a pardon. It would be like the President of the United States pardoning you and then of a terrible crime and then having a White House presentation to award you, even though you'd never been in the Armed Forces, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Now, wherever you go, people stand up, they admire you, they salute you. Now, you may say, well, that's crazy. Of course it is. But when we are justified, we're made righteous in God's sight, and the creator of the universe says, he or she is my child, and I love her, and accept him in my presence at any time, and desire to spend eternity blessing them. That's justification. We are freely justified. I was listening to a sermon one time by a tremendous preacher on this out of Deuteronomy chapter 7. And uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, we have a picture of Israel defeating seven nations. God does it through them. And then it reads this way, uh, where God's talking to the people after uh, all of this is done and they've defeated these nations. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, it says, For you, talking to the Israelites, are a people holy to the Lord your God. The word holy means to be set apart for God's purposes. The Lord your God has chosen you, Israelites, out of all the peoples in the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. Matter of fact, they were among the smallest of nations. It says, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, that means to purchase you back, from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This particular pastor, when he was doing the sermon, and he spent quite a bit of time on, on uh, uh, sort of exegeting the passage, he says, it's as if God said to Israel, I love you because I love you, because I love you, because I love you. Now, if we're not careful, 
we can easily take this love and this freedom for granted. Practically speaking, we see this in those who give their lives in war. My brother died in the Second World War. He was only 21 years old. He died in war so I can live in peace. Now, you might be thinking, well, do you think about this much? Do you think about it much? Well, no, hardly ever. I mean, I was born after he died, and I know the family history, and I know all about him from what was written about him in their family history. Uh, but no, I, I don't really uh, think about it that much. But that is what Jesus did for us through his death on a Roman cross long before any of us were born. He died a criminal's death, death on a cross, so that we can live a life of spiritual freedom and joyful hope. And we must not take this for granted. We must remember it literally every day. Every day. We need to be reading our Bibles. We need to be thinking about God and talking to God all the time, thanking Him for saving us for all of eternity just because he loved us, because he loved us, because he loved us, because he loved us. We only need to accept it. And the results are a salvation that is freely and lovingly given. Now, some might say, uh, Pastor Carl, that, that sounds pretty amazing, but do you find it anyplace else in Scripture? Well, yeah, many places, but 2 Corinthians 5.21 is one of my favorites. 2 Corinthians 5.21 reads this way. God made him. Who's him? Say it loud. Jesus. God made him who had no sin. He was perfect to be sin for me, for us, so that in Jesus, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. I mean, this is amazing. I am the righteousness of God. Imagine if I came uh, up here, and uh, none of you knew me at all. Some, most of you do, a lot of you don't. And I come up here, and I said, I just want to introduce myself. My name is Carl Dixon. I'm the righteousness of God. I'm absolutely perfect, and all of that. I mean, some of you, uh, you, you would say, well, we already know you. We know that's not true. But it is true in God's sight. I mean, call it crazy or impossible, but the verse says, Romans teaches that God sees me as completely righteous in Christ. Yes, even me. It's amazing. We are free to joyfully serve our Lord and be continually forgiven even when we fail. I mean, this is amazing. The verse that I quote more than any other verse in my preaching is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, Christian then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's talking to Christians. So 1 John 1, 9 lets us know that now when we mess up, our acknowledgement of our mess causes us to be cleansed because of the blood of Jesus. And as I like to say, God chooses to forget sin completely so if, you had, if you're a Christian and you had done something just terrible, or even in your thought life, you, it was just awful, and you come to God and you say, God, please forgive me. I, I repent of this. 
And then immediately you were to say, God, you know that thing I just asked for forgiveness? And God has said, I don't know what you're talking about. I've chosen to forget all that. that. Oh, I don't know. God chooses to forget it. Here's an important verse, a memory verse for most of you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace, grace, God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor, undeserved kindness, for it is by grace you have been saved, have been, it's a done deal, through faith. Now, this is incredible. And this is not from yourselves. What is not? Faith or grace. It's a gift. It is the free gift of God. Now, these next verses explain most of what I have just said in a slightly different way. So look in your Bibles at verse 25. Verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement. He atoned. Uh, here's the best way to understand that. We learn in chapter 1 of Romans about God's wrath. Chapter 1 and chapter 2. The wrath of God is God's righteous anger. He, uh, God just doesn't fly off the hook sort of thing. Like, uh, but he, when he gets angry, it's a righteous anger. The anger is deserved. And God's wrath is placed on all of us when we are, are not Christians. But Christ came as a sacrifice for atonement, and he took on God's wrath in my place. And so here's something, as a Christian, you must really grasp. God is not mad at you anymore. He's not mad at you. He might be, he, he, it says don't grieve the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is God. To grieve means don't make him cry for you because he'll feel bad for you, but he's not mad at you. He loves you. And so here's, here's verse 25. God presented Christ, that's Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, when you see the shedding of his blood to deal with Christ, or any, it means death. That's death on the cross, so there's the cross. To be received by faith, you have to receive it. And why did he do it? God did it to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, that word means patience, long patience, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Well, what does that mean? Well, all through history, God gave the Jewish people a picture of what was to come by their sacrifice of animals. That's why it's so important to read the Old Testament. They would sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the atonement seat or the mercy seat uh, in the tabernacle, and that would represent forgiveness until the Messiah came, until Jesus came. Leviticus, I just did a series in the church on the, on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And one of the things I say often when I teach the Old Testament is that there are chapters in the Old Testament that every Christian should know by heart. I don't mean every word, but you should know what's in it. Chapter 12, for instance, of Genesis is the call of Abraham. You should know that chapter and its purpose and why it's important. The first three chapters of Genesis, especially chapter 3, now the creation, chapter 1 and 2, but chapter 3 and the fall of man and understand all that. Uh, one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible, and especially in the Old Testament, to understand what Jesus did is the book of Leviticus. 
a book that is probably the least read book other than Numbers in the Bible. Uh, Leviticus chapter 16 shows us a picture of Jesus in one of the clearest ways you'll ever see it any place. And in, in chapter 16, we have a picture of the Day of Atonement, which is a once a year time where the priest goes into the temple and he sprinkles blood on the atonement seat and then he returns again. To begin with, that's a picture of Jesus. Jesus came and shed his blood, and now he's gone, and it's exactly the same words used when he left that he's returning again like the priest did when he came out from the atonement seat. But then they did something else that is just spectacular. They did some animal sacrifices, and they took these two goats, and they chose one goat as a sacrifice that goes into the atonement seat, and they sprinkled the blood of that goat. And then they come out again and take the other goat, and they laid hands on the other goat, and then somebody was given, there's all kinds of ceremony here, but somebody was given the job of taking that goat into the wilderness and letting it go. And that's called the scapegoat. So Jesus has become our mercy seat, and he's our scapegoat. He took away our sins. He was killed outside the camp. We no longer need to sprinkle blood. Instead, Jesus did it once and for all for us. And he did it. Look at verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We have to believe. Now, here's something that's important. God would be just. He would be absolutely just if he were to condemn the world and end everything right now. That would be just. Because he doesn't do that, some people think they're getting away with their sin. But they're not. The proof is the death of Jesus Christ. In eternity, where we're all heading, all sin will be paid for. Justice will be done. There is a final judgment. And those who know Jesus will receive eternal life, and those who refuse Jesus will be away from God's presence for eternity. That's what the Bible calls hell. So let's look again at Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll add some verses. I've put them on the screen here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It reads this way. For it is by grace, unmerited favor, undeserved kindness, you have been saved, it's past tense, through faith. You have, to, you have to have faith. And this, why? Grace and faith is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. Why? Because it's not by work, so no one could boast. I mean, if, if, if I did something to deserve righteousness, then I'd brag about what I just did. For we are God's handiwork, that's a Greek word that means poema, it's pronounced, it's a picture of a poem, a, a poem or a nice piece of art. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to do. To me, that's always been an amazing verse. Here's what it says. When we become a Christian, we're a new creation, Paul says. And we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he does the good works through us, and then he rewards us for what he did. Amazing. Now, some would boast 
that they had done better than others by keeping the law if you could be saved in any way by keeping the law. They'd say, well, I've never murdered anyone. I haven't stolen anything. I certainly haven't committed these terrible sexual sins. I've kept the law, so I'm okay. Most of you know the story of the rich, young, religious ruler. Uh, One day, this rich, young, religious ruler came up to Jesus, literally went down on his knees, showing at least some uh, modicum of humility, and he says, good master, what should I do? He was Jewish. What should I do to to earn uh, eternal life? And so Jesus started quoting the Ten Commandments. He got through six commandments, and I think the young man interrupted him and says, okay, I've already done all that. I've kept all those commandments. What else should I do? And then it says that Jesus loved him and looked at him, and he said this. He said, here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you have. Remember, he's rich, he's young, he's a ruler, he's powerful, and he's religious. And Jesus said, I want you to sell everything you have and then give it all away to the poor. So his riches are gone, his power is gone. Everything that he had lived for is gone. And so he loved those things so much that he walked away from salvation and we don't know his name. It's really sad to read this story. You see, none of that matters. None of what we did, none of the accomplishments as far as salvation comes matters. What we did or did not do is no help when it comes to salvation. Salvation has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with keeping the law. And so Paul, is, in verse 27, 28, he, he's, it's a way of arguing. And he's doing this because he's thinking about all the times he's explained the gospel. So there's some questions. Verse 27, where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified, is righteous by faith, apart from the works of the law. So there's nothing to boast about. When we respond to the gospel, we respond as hopeless sinners. No cleaning up our act before we repent. If that were the case, one would definitely boast about how good they were just before they were saved. The works God has prepared for us are works He does through us. They're not works we do for Him to win His approval. Something I read uh, in a sermon by Timothy Keller uh, about this clears it up a little bit. He writes, if you think your good deeds are good, if you think... I want you to really think about this. If you think your good deeds are good, if you think, if you think your unselfish good deeds are good, they're no good. In other words, if you think they're good and therefore God owes you something, then they're not good by definition. They're not good by your own definition. Your selflessness is really selfishness. And sometimes people will say, well, surely that person, they've done all of these good works, they're such great people, they give away all this money, they do all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, they do it for selfish reasons. Every time. No sinner can do anything except for selfish reasons. They think that what they're doing uh, deserves some kind of reward. 
Uh, Keller goes on to point out that if we think that we now must do good works to be approved of God after we're a Christian, then our good works are for ourselves and are completely worthless. Pride suggests that our good works can substitute for belief in the Son of God. Faith requires a humble admission that we are helpless to redeem ourselves. Question. So how do we do those works God has prepared for us beforehand? The answer is the fear of God. Keep in mind, the fear of God is actually the worship of God. The fear of God is our desire to please God through our worship and obedience to His direction in our lives. When we're saved, we now have different desires. This can be very confusing. It certainly was for me when I was saved. But I learned that the conflict was a good thing and that God was working in my life to eliminate those things that were keeping me from worshiping Him exclusively, unconditionally, by faith from first to last. And that's why God did me a favor. He took away our beautiful home. We had the biggest house in the street, the largest swimming pool on the street, and a continuous lineup of new automobiles that I thought I needed, but God said, now you don't need those. You see, that had all become my identity. God was saying, I'm your identity. Trust me. Live by faith. I have a better plan than yours. At first, when I got saved, I became a Pharisee. I pointed out the sins of everyone I worked with. They soon uh, came to despise me and the Christianity I represented. It wasn't until I took everyone in the office out for lunch, person by person, and apologized for my pharisaical attitude that things changed. You see, my identity was now as a child of God, and that is when the whole direction of my life changed. The things I had boasted about became unimportant to me. They were replaced by my new desire to please God. Actually, this made me better at my job than ever before. I was a stockbroker and did fairly well. And uh, rather than making money to show how great a stockbroker I was, I was making more money now by truly caring about my clients and their financial welfare rather than my commissions. But you see, that's a God thing. I didn't decide that. God decided that. He changed me. He made me righteous, even though I was far from even close to being righteous. Well, we have two final points and we're done. Verse 29 and 30. Verse 29. Paul's thinking the way some people are thinking. So, is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, that's the religious Jew, by faith, and the uncircumcised, this is the Gentile that has no religious ideas, uh, through the same faith. So, in a sense, this final verse reaches back into the earlier chapters of Romans where we learn that the purpose of the law is to reflect back to us our need for a Savior. By looking into the law, we see we can never measure up to God's standards. Never. That's why the law is good. The law is designed to cause us to reach out beyond ourselves toward God. It's like a school teacher teaching us that we need a Savior. 
So Paul imagines someone misunderstanding that truth and saying this, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? This means this. Has the law become irrelevant when we believe in Jesus by faith? And Paul's answer is not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Even the phrase not at all in the, in the Greek language is the strongest negative imperative. It's, all, it's as close to swearing as you'll ever read in the Bible for Paul. The law drives us to faith as it did Abraham long before Moses delivers the law. Abraham was saved by faith, as chapter 4 teaches in Romans. And we're saved by faith in Jesus who fulfilled the law uh, we couldn't possibly have perf- perfectly obeyed. Jesus fulfilled the law. In a paraphrase of something that Keller said, I wrote, because of the law, we now have a respect for moral absolutes and justice. We are confident in our salvation, non-judgmental of others, forgiving to those who wrong us and not crushed by our own flaws and failings. The gospel frees us to uphold the law. There are many Christians who are saved but don't realize the very power of their salvation. Many. The Bible teaches that we're all under sin, that we're all captured by sin, that we're all being ordered around by our sin nature. Like a commander in the army or a slave master in ancient times. But now we have been saved from the power of sin. Redeemed. Remember that word? As if you're bought off a slave block. We no longer have to sin. Do you know that as a Christian? You don't have to sin. But that doesn't mean that we have no responsibility. We must stop doing the things that have caused us to sin in the past. And we must submit to the things that will keep us from sin in the future. So my sort of closing question and exhortation is this. Do you understand the power of your salvation? Are you trusting in Jesus only for your eternal salvation? Do you realize that as far as God is concerned, you are righteous? God knows your flaws, and He still loves you because He loves you, because He loves you, because He loves you, because He loves you. For all eternity. I'd like the music team to come back up. I just want to read something as they're coming. Uh, Pastor Reggie Green in our church down in Sarasota uh, uh, makes a, a new video for the sermon every week. All he ever knows is the verses that I'm going to teach on. He has no idea what I'm going to teach. And you've already heard what he wrote in the announcing video without any knowledge of what I was going to say. I'm amazed week after week as he puts these things together fresh every single week how my sermon and what he writes come together. Uh, Our worship leader said, well, maybe it's because you're both reading the same Bible. (laughs) So I'm just going to read you what you already heard on the screen and then we can worship. Here's what Reggie wrote. We're righteous only because of faith in Christ. The good that's in us is because of His life. Sin marred us and left us cut, bruised, and sliced, 
but the gospel brought healing to our life of vice. It's through the gospel that sin surrenders its grip because on the cross, Jesus died so sin can be whipped. Sin was the problem until grace became the script. Sin was the storm until grace became the ship. The message of Jesus is the victory. The power over sin is humility. Dependency on Jesus is a certainty if sin's power is going to be a casualty. Romans 3, 21 to 31. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you will use the main theme of these verses as they certainly changed Martin Luther's life to change all of our lives here. And Father, many of us have been Christians for a long time and need to learn over and over again how amazing grace really is. How much we don't deserve it no matter what. But how much you love us because you loved us, because you loved us, because you loved us, because you loved us. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.